in order to persuade somebody, you have to like take what you're talking about and connect it to their values and then show them how that thing is an extension of their values, right? Like you want to have universal healthcare because we want to make sure that everyone doesn't have to worry when they get sick. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Scott Simpson, is co-founder and CEO of the direct mail firm Resonance Campaigns. Resonance helps Democrats with direct mail and digital communications. They're one of the vendors to the Biden-Harris campaign, as well as Hillary Clinton four years earlier, for example. Scott has an interesting story that takes him through the Democratic polling world into direct mail with another firm and then into political entrepreneurship of his own. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Scott Simpson of Resonance Campaigns. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Scott, do you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Scott Simpson. I'm the managing partner of Resonance Campaigns. We're a direct mail firm, uh, a digital firm based in Washington, D.C., and uh, also got some folks in California and other places. I've been working in politics pretty much my whole career, but specifically as a consultant since like 2004, I did polling before I got into direct mail. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts in a, I would say, liberal household that uh, was definitely supporting Democrats. We did canvassing, I remember, once or twice. I grew up with a, in a mixed family. My dad was, is black and my mom is white. Went to school in Pennsylvania to get out of Massachusetts and then came to D.C. to pursue a dream to work in politics. I have a mixed family too. My wife is uh, Chinese American. That background, I mean, it sets you apart a little bit in the polling world, in the consulting world, uh, in democratic politics to not just be another white consultant. Did that play any role in, in the development of your career or is it kind of irrelevant? No, I mean, I, I think it's definitely important. I, I don't think there are very many black consultants at all. I had a lot of advantages um, with two parents who had gone to college by the time I was born and everything else. And, and that gives me an advantage in, in certain things. I think it's definitely what I focus on now is trying to bring that perspective that I think is lacking in politics in terms of people of color not really being consultants and having a say in certain places. And I think it hurts our campaigns 
and what we're trying to do because those voices aren't always there. So that's a voice I definitely try to provide to both white candidates and also, you know, in helping candidates of color as well. It's probably very helpful to political consulting in general and just kind of having a perspective of different worlds as a kid and throughout my, you know, growing up. I mean, there's been a little bit of a social movement among consultants of color to to open up the field to get campaigns and party committees to hire more in a more diverse manner. Have you seen any effects of that in a positive way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely positively affected our firm. Like that's a a big hunk of what our work is is because somebody was looking for an African American firm. And I think it's up to us in other places we make that pers- that perspective isn't as important um, it, or isn't what somebody was going for, I would say. We're still one of the only firms and um, it, it's a small percentage, I would say, of overall in progressive politics. I would say consulting firms are more diverse than they were 10 years ago, but we don't look like the electorate that we largely deal with. We don't look like the Democratic electorate, I would say. When you're hiring, how much do you worry about that? How big is your firm and how diverse is it yourself? The answer to your question is something that I've always been focused on and, and something that I, it takes an ongoing commitment to. Our firm is 11 folks at the moment. And I would say, I think it's like 30% people of color, which is not probably enough. Or I don't think it's enough. I think it's something that we're we're going for to, to try to increase consistently and, and also do it to the higher levels of the firm too. How did you first get into the political game as a consultant? What was your entry point? So it's interesting, right? Like I, so my first job out of college was managing a house of delegates race and I was living at my dad's house and we lost that race. And I went and worked on another campaign for the mayor of DC um, and I ended up getting hired by the campaign for like 500 bucks for two weeks at, at a time. And then I got hired by the transition team and then actually worked in the mayor's administration for Anthony Williams. And I really didn't like government. So I, I ended up going to a software firm that does political software. And I worked there for what seemed like a really long time was like four years, but it was kind of political adjacent, really. It wasn't really like actively working for democratic causes. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that software firm? Cause I think I'm well aware of them. That was Aristotle, right? Yeah. So they, I mean, we did compliance software basically to help people file their FEC reports for the most part. What was your job there? Uh, mostly what I did was like tech support where we would call people and figure out like what, what about the software wasn't, getting their FEC report or their state financial disclosure report to kick out the right numbers. Um, and sometimes I'd go and do trainings and show people like how to use the software. That was largely it. But it was like, you know, they they had Republicans and Democrats using the software. So it wasn't like I was working towards the things I cared about, which other than that was a great experience as an early 20 something or a late 20 something, I guess, at that point to to be, you know, working with other young kids and, and doing things in software that I think were pretty interesting. What insight do you think you got from campaigns from just 
dealing with those kind of mundane problems, but you're still dealing with campaign staff, right, over the phone, and you pick up a little bit. What did you learn from that kind of tech support and other work you were doing? I think I learned more about software than I did about politics in that role, or just about like, you know, interacting with people and dealing with, you know, Republicans and Democrats and how businesses work. I, I think that was a really helpful job in relation to running a firm now and things that I learned and different work habits that like, you know, I was able to deal with and, and start to grow into learning about things. I don't see that as as much of a, a political connection as it was kind of like a business and software angle. It was a bigger business than the one you run now. What did you learn about how a business operates in the political space from them? What did I learn? I mean, I learned about, you know, the hiring of people and evaluating in a, a, and kind of like just the basic parts of, of, I would guess, hiring and firing and, and kind of looking at folks and focusing on the bottom line of things and how salespeople operated and what made those things different. But the overall business structure was pretty unique from the way we market things and kind of how political consulting firms work, if that makes sense. Yeah. What did you think of the, the leadership there? They, I, they were great guys that were great to me in terms of like really kind of like recognizing that I could do the job that we were doing and kind of like fostering my growth when I was a kid who was willing to mostly work really hard, but also, you know, I, I think I was, I wouldn't have wanted to employ me. Let me say that much. I think I was a pain in the ass. Uh, but I felt like, you know, Dean in particular and, and Rob Christ, who's the finance, chief financial officer, kind of mentored me and saw somebody who was willing to work really hard, even if I was rough around the edges about interacting with other people and everything else. My experience with people who do tech support in that role at other companies is that it's a bit of a burnout job. You tire after a while of uh, the pressure of sort of technical support. Did you feel that way? Um, I, I mean, I can look back into like when we would have really busy times right around filings that were really hard uh, to deal with because you're, you have, you know, people are doing, people haven't broken up the software in eight months and they want to uh, file their FEC report by putting all the entries in, in the next couple of days and they haven't updated the software. So it was hard. It's not the hardest I've ever worked or the most burned out I've ever been, but it definitely was challenging around those times and kind of, uh, it's not probably something somebody wants to do for years at a time in the tech support part of it. Yeah. Uh, why did you leave and move into polling and how did you make that happen? So that's yeah, an interesting question. So I actually went to graduate school in Florida to do what's called the campaigning program, which is, you know, a, a, a simple, it, most people have never heard of it, but it's the same as like the GSPM at George Washington. So I went to grad school and, they, and Aristotle actually let me work from there. So I continued to do it for another two years. But I knew I really wanted to get into like working on democratic campaigns, right? And being on one side of things. A friend that I worked with at Aristotle had another friend who'd interned at Lake Research. And so I needed an internship during the summer and I went and worked um, for, for Lake for like three months during the summer. 
and then ended up that like I finished grad school in like three semesters. So they ended up hiring me in like December of 2004. So I, I went and worked there. And I, as I've described it before, like they had a, a writing test of like cross tabs that they said after I'd been there at the internship and they were like, well, let's just write an analysis from these cross tabs so we could see what you do. And, and like, I, I could tell you that if I found it now, I would burn it because it just didn't make any sense. But Celinda was nice enough to be like, well, why don't you send us something else you've written? So that I sent like a term paper that I just done. And they're like, okay, so he can write. He just doesn't know anything about Poland yet. So then I started there in 2004, which was really when I started, like, I would say in the world of consulting and everything else. What did you like about the world of consulting? It's one of those things like, what do you initially like about it is probably not always the healthiest part. I think that I liked being connected to campaigns that were exciting, that were like, were about, you know, how do we win and what can we do and, and what is this developing strategy with other people and, and being our, at that point, you would like sit on conference calls and listen to like other consultants go through strategy. And in general, I thought it like took three years of listening to conference calls before you could have something worthwhile to say. And then it would take another year before you, you had anything that actually made me sense or helps out. But I definitely like doing the analysis when I was polling, finding out like, oh, here's what these numbers actually say and what it means that we should do to try to win this and what we should be saying. I think it's something I'd watched from afar and been like, oh, I think I could be good at that. I think it takes a really long time before you start to know whether you are or what you're actually talking about. Do you think that the strategy that we employ and the quality of the campaigns that we run make much difference in who wins and who loses? Yeah, it definitely do. I, I think like I, I could point to badly run campaigns. Does it does it always make a huge difference? No, like it doesn't always make a difference. But I think like people lose races they sometimes should not have lost. And sometimes people run really well campaigns and, and still lose. Or sometimes they run a really good campaign and win one that they shouldn't have, I assume. If you run a really good race and you win, then you should have won the race. I would say that, you know, if you win narrowly running the absolute best campaign that you could have put together, you probably shouldn't have won. We could argue that that fine point. But give me an example so I understand. Like, what's a really well-run campaign that wins narrowly that shouldn't have won? So let's say you have a district or a state that leans the other way, right? That if you took all of the variables, if your candidate ran a average campaign, they should lose it by, you know, 52-48. But because you come up with a unique strategy because you find some thing on the opponent because you execute really well and pay attention to the right message, you eke out a victory. Well, you probably shouldn't have won that, but you won it because you, you overperformed. I guess I wouldn't see it like you shouldn't, that's kind of like an esoteric should or shouldn't have won. Right. But like, if you run the right campaign, if the opponent did something that people should know about and that they find troubling, like, and I, I think you've done your job and that's why we play the game. Should the Rams have won the Super Bowl? Yeah, they put together a pretty good game plan and they executed it. Like, would my heart have liked the Bengals to win? Probably. They seem like an underdog. In a certain way, we're touching on a 
tricky part of the evaluation of campaigns and of political strategy, which is a lot of times people get judged by that win or loss, not by how much better the campaign did for the efforts that they put in than it would have done, you know, had they not. Right. I, like, I think you, that's right. I think that happens all the time. And, and, and particularly in democratic politics, like the, the, the peanut gallery after win or a loss can tell you immediately why it happened. Right. And it's usually by faction. But one faction says, no, we lost that because you guys did this or we lost that because we didn't do enough of this. I don't know if it's unique to like left leaning politics around the world, but it's unique to the democratic politics in America because we're a coalition party. Right. And the people to blame for the loss are the other part of the coalition. What part of the coalition do you uh, hail from? The just win part of the coalition. The the Nancy Pelosi should be the speaker part of the coalition. So whatever you have to do to win whatever district is what you should be doing, because that, I think, is the utilitarian part of like, we're going to feed the most kids. We're going to stop fascism. We're going to do everything else if we are in power and because they are inherently trying to do the opposite of all the things we want to do. So you spent a good part, part of your career in that world of polling. Yes. What were the key things that you learned? at a series of jobs at polling firms that you brought forward that inform how you think about politics and how you think about running a business in politics? Well, I think in terms of the how I think about politics, it definitely affects my strategy, what I see in the research that we get, right? Like, okay, I could make a decision based on these numbers, but they don't actually mean what they mean, right? Or what a deeper knowledge of what is actually going on in polling, right? Or, or who it is. When we say we're talking about black voters in this particular thing, we're really talking about two thirds of them being black women over 60, right? Those are things that I pick up from polling, knowing whether or not one particular message is stronger and actually will persuade people to the extent that we can still persuade people, I think are things that I picked up from polling, you know, knowing what numbers look good and which numbers are actually trouble, right? Like people tend to use polling, I think, as like a defense of their own strategy a lot or where the campaign is. Um, and I think like having worked in polling for seven years, I've, I've got at least a perspective of like, yeah, I don't know if that's entirely true or, or like being able to at least offer my perspective about what the data could actually mean. You actually moved into someone else's direct mail firm first, right? After polling? Yeah. Well, yeah. after working at Lake for almost four years, I worked at another polling firm, Hamilton Campaigns, for almost three years. And then I started at Gumbiner and Davies for about six years. What, what, tell me about that firm. I, I never actually heard of Gumbiner and Davies. They do direct mail and, and they do a lot of state legislative stuff, which I think is like, create means they're creating a lot of pieces relative to the number that we do. Michael and Jeff and, and now Gabby as well, like are really committed to like, I think our creative is, is better because I worked there for such a long time. I think they have a really high standard of doing creative stuff. Jeff 
governor also worked at a polling firm too. So we had that in common. I think he, he has a really good understanding of polling as well. I think it was really helpful. Two of the people that work for us now had worked there as well. Our art director, Tricia Cavell worked there and uh, Sean Whitson, who is our creative director, worked there. In a lot of Democratic firms, you know, polling and in direct mail, you can see systems that like somebody took from somewhere else that kind of like work all the way through. Like there's a family tree of polling that comes from like one of three or four branches, right? And, and ways that, you know, they track internal jobs are similar. And I think a lot of the way, there's similar ways that we do structure mail that's similar to the way, you know, not just the firm that I worked at, but other firms previously had done things. A lot of that structure, I think, comes from where I worked before and, and it, it helped guide the kind of internal stuff that we did initially and continue to do. When I talked to a executive director of the DCCC back in like 98, he sort of gave me a hierarchy of political consultants, which kind of had media consultants at the top and some of the, you know, direct mail and fundraising consultants more towards the bottom, polling closer to the top. Did you feel like you had moved down the totem pole at all coming from polling in terms of being part of the strategy coming from polling and moving to direct mail? I did not feel that way. I think one, it depends on the campaign. Two, it depends on like the consultants that are involved. I think like there is a, this, like basically this is like a, a gentleman's agreement, right? And I, I use that gendered term because it, it seems to be who was mostly doing this at the time. But like, we're going to have a pollster, we're going to have a media consultant, we're going to have a male consultant. You guys are going to do separate things, but you're going to advise us on the strategy and everything else. And I think the pollster is there to kind of tell you how you do it. And then in bigger races, the media consultant is doing the bulk of what we're doing, right? In state legislative races, that's not usually the case. It's like the direct mail is going to carry the narrative. I think that's primarily how it shakes out. But did I think it was a drop? No, I don't think so. I think most pollsters are smarter than most mail consultants and, and media consultants as well. It's all like a lot of times like everybody does the strategy and then you go produce your product right? Like, I think that's how it happens for most parts that I've always seen. When you were working at, at that direct mail firm, what was your job? What did you actually do day to day? So I started as an account executive, which at, at that firm meant we moved everything from like writing pieces all the way through to making sure they printed and dropped on time, which is like writing it, getting it into design, going over edits with a partner, getting it to the client, getting it approved by the client after making edits, and then getting it to the printer with the list and everything else. And then also developing the plan at the beginning of that too. So just kind of shepherding stuff along and, and moving it through. To what extent were you guys able to test the efficacy of your pieces or to what extent was that part of the process at all or was it more a feel? I think this is a good, like a good question too, right? In lots of cases, we were polling before we did the work, the mail and then doing dropping mail and sending it to people and then polling again to see if we move certain things or what dynamics of trade. So there's actually a lot of testing about 
what is actually making a difference and, and getting through to people and what's not. Um, especially in, sm in smaller races, right? That the mayor's race are like something where the male is dominant. And, you know, testing became a really big thing, you know, 10 to 12 years ago and, and continues to be something that folks do and, and happens with experiments and everything else. So tell me about that decision to leave a firm you'd been at for, you know, more than half a decade and go out on your own. Well, they kind of told me to get lost. They're basically like, yeah, we, you should go somewhere else, which I, I kind of understand. And I now I think I've said before. How did that happen? Like what? were were they was that in your best interest or did they need to downsize or uh, no it was I, I think it was personalities right and i was going to be a partner and i didn't really love how it felt to be that and so i was a problem and like i think they wisely were like we don't think you know you can be happy here at the end and it ended up being a great thing right that ended up being the the nudge out the door that I probably wasn't brave enough to take on my own to be like, yeah, I could run a firm and do it on my own. Um, and, and not having like nobody in my family had ever run a business. I didn't know what, I, when I started the firm, I didn't know the difference between an accountant and a bookkeeper. I talked to a couple other firms and ended up starting my own because it's like, I was like, well, I think I know everything that goes into producing mail, which I, it, I turned out I did. And then, you know, things just kind of grow from there. Did you form it alone? Did you start with co-founders? Yeah. Sean Whitson is a, a partner and was there at the beginning too. He'd been running his own firm and we had worked well together when he was at Gumbiner and Davies prior. He, he left about three years before that, I think, to start his own firm. We worked really well. Sean's able to come up with lots of concepts. And then I kind of figure out if they work in the particular place and we, we move them into design. So that's, that's been a really good partnership for us through the years. So was it more like you joined a firm of his or did you start again fresh? We with, started a new one. Yeah. yeah. And, Resonance and, became a new firm. And Resonance to me is a very good name choice. Why did you pick that? Really? Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Lots of times people are like, is it Residence? Like where you live? Like, uh, I mean, we went through stuff and we were looking at it and, and there's a theory of communication that resonance theory that in order to persuade somebody, you have to like take what you're talking about and connect it to their values and then show them how that thing is an extension of their values, right? Like you want to have universal healthcare because we want to make sure that everyone doesn't have to worry when they get sick. That's why we want to do that. I think that's a, a basic example of it off the top of my head. But I think that's essentially what political communication does whenever we're talking to people. To me, it has a almost like evokes a kind of a musical metaphor. Does this tune resonate well with your brain? Does this message resonate well with your brain? That's how I hear it. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the same thing, right? Like the things that about a tune that resonate with you are connected to what's already in you already, right? If you're feeling it and you know about it inherently, then it's, it makes sense to you. You can see where it's going. When you start a new firm, it's kind of an exciting time. It's kind of a scary time often, depending on how easily clients come to you. Um, tell me about how you felt during that first year with your company. 
Yeah, it's definitely exciting. I I mean, I, I had a goal to like pay my mortgage for the year and never not had a job before. So it was kind of like, uh, oh, wow, there's this much money in the bank account. Okay, there's this much money in the bank account. The first mail piece we did had like 740 pieces that we were sending to people, but they slowly got bigger through the spring. You're still constantly marketing for for both. It was an odd year 2015 where there's not as much work but like um marketing for the even year too and just starting to to get to more clients i've likened it to like people are like wow you had a really great year and i was like well it's not that hard to like run when a bear's chasing you and you know we didn't have like we had very few full-time employees the first year we just and, and we ended up building up enough capital to finance the next year which i didn't realize like other people start with money. Like I didn't know that that was a thing. I didn't have that luxury. Definitely. It ended up being really good that we made enough money for the next year that let us hire people as the year went on. How much of that was hustle? How much of that was existing connections? How much of that was the work you did? I would assume it's a combination of all three. Like how does it break out? I was definitely willing to go meet with lots of people and I think it's probably disproportionately connections and relationships that people, especially as you start, are like, oh, we want to help you. This is the thing we're doing. I think we ran into a market that was looking for a diverse firm of somebody to say like, hey, we actually look at politics this way. And, and people, especially large organizations, were definitely looking for that. I always had the idea that we should act like a firm that's bigger than we actually are. So even though it's like, three people all sitting in their kitchens, like let's do the work and the creative that a firm, you know, five to 10 times our size would, would do. And I think that that showed uh, bigger organizations and campaigns that we were capable of doing the stuff that we did. Who was good about bringing you in to races and to campaigns initially? A lot of people, and I'll end up leaving somebody off and not doing it. I mean, I think what really helped us was um, was work that we did with Ask Me early on, work that we did through SEIU for Black Pack. Um, we did, I, I think I knew through the beginning of the year that we had a chance to get on the Hillary campaign. And so, um, you know, the folks like Robbie Mook and Orrin Schur who were on the campaign and, and other people that I knew that connected me to them. Um, were, you know, entirely helpful in terms of bringing us on. Dan Senna, who's now a media consultant, was at the DCCC and, and invited me to, to come in to that building and, and really helped us with stuff that they did. So I'm going to leave people out, but lots of folks, particularly in organizations, and I think, like, we do a lot more campaigns now, but, you know, we did stuff for Color of Change really early on, and, and that was through someone... Johnny Mathias, who has worked at Color of Change for probably 10 plus years now, but I knew from a race in Virginia that he'd managed. So lots of different people, and it continues to to be folks who just bring you into one thing or another. And, and yeah, I would go anywhere and meet with anyone, and I'd still try to do that and make it a rule. Like, I'll meet with anybody. I want to know lots of people and and talk to them about politics. How do you see the competitive space among direct mail digital firms? 
where do you fit in among that? Are there tons of firms? Are there few that you think are good? How do you see your competition? I mean, how do we fit in? Everybody sucks except for us. No, I'm just kidding. Like, it's funny. You don't actually get to see that much of what other people do that often, unless you're like on the presidential and for Hillary, there were five firms. So you got to see what they were producing and it was helpful to do that. There are people who, who you see out there that, that do really good work and you kind of know what's going to happen as one firm or another gets hired. It, it is pretty competitive in terms of like, you know, lots of people always want to do a pitch process with three firms and decide who's going to get hired that way. Most of our work doesn't come from pitches, but it usually comes from referrals where somebody's just like, you should hire them or we've done a really good job. There's lots of smart people who do this and, and there continue to be, and there's lots of firms that are growing. I'm surprised that there aren't as many minority owned firms still that are like, that, that we compete with or there are folks who've made diverse hires and, and that's definitely different than it was 10 years ago. Um, but I think part of that is we still occupy a pretty unique space and, and, and that's kind of core to what we want to do. I mean, if you were on the other end of this, say you were working for a presidential campaign or one of these organizations and it was your job to pick which firm to work with, what would be the basis on which you would make that decision? How would you evaluate different direct mail vendors from that side of the table? I definitely would want to make sure, you know, the Biden campaign had three firms, right? And we were one of them. I, I would want to make sure that you had diversity at the top level of the firm too, not somebody that you're saying like, oh, this is one of the five people we would have. If you're a presidential, it's also about like, you know, one thing that was a really good advantage of the, the prior firm that I worked at, Governor Davis, is that I did deal with printers. and that's a big advantage of not being cut off from them and knowing how printers work. And if you're a really big campaign and you're printing millions of pieces, you do need to know that the firm has done that kind of capacity and done it at large numbers and has the ability to like deal with things that come up, right? Like moving to different printers or doing the mailhouse scheduling and, and things like that. So you want to know that they're big enough to deal with the logistical stuff of that that they have time to, to focus on what you're doing. If you're the presidential, you should be expecting somebody to put like their full weight behind what you're doing. So, you know, knowing how much time somebody has and what they're willing to do and um, is all really important that they have thoughts and ideas about where mail is for the next two years. You're gonna probably be one of the biggest mail consumers as a big campaign. Um, it, you want to know that they're doing innovation or that they're, they're going to show you what the latest thing is that they've been thinking about and just that they're ready for the internal processes and everything else. I don't have a sense of to what extent you do the digital side. Um, I know it's part of what your firms advertise that they do. Why, why in this day and age, does it still make sense to send stuff, a snail mail and what, and how do you figure out what percentage of stuff should be sent? you know, digitally versus uh, otherwise? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think as, I, as we've done more digital, I've started to realize what it is that makes mail so effective too. And and part of it is, is like, and I'll credit Ed Peavy with saying this on a podcast where I heard him interviewed, is like, we know we can get this in your hand, right? Or at least somebody in your household's hand at the very least. Um, you're going to have to deal with it, but it's specifically you. Right now, di- digital is not like, for the most part, one-to-one, I'm sending this to you, to Scott Simpson, and knowing he's going to get it, and he's going to get it however many times, particularly in smaller races, the targeting is, is even more challenging in terms of getting the impressions and things up to certain levels. But mail is like, you know, it's really easy to get different messages and get it in front of somebody that has to deal with it. You have to throw your mail away every day. And the way that the voter file works makes mail really helpful because we can score folks and we can um, look at demographic information and everything else and target them and not have any waste, right? If, if I target people outside of that state legislative district, then I really did something wrong, right? It was a big mistake. So there's not a lot of waste in, in any um, aspect when you do mail that way. So it's, it's efficient too, right? It's targeted and directed folks and can go to specific targets and makes a difference about, you know, what people are, will get the message from it. My observation in life is a lot of times if you start climbing a ladder, you can get up to the top of it. And if you set out to build a direct mail firm, you can end up with a direct mail firm. Uh, sometimes the mistake comes in deciding to climb the wrong ladder. Do you think you've climbed the right ladder? Do you, do you wish you'd started a polling firm instead? Do you wish you'd gone down a different road? Why are you happy or not happy with where you found yourself? I'm happy with where I find myself for reasons about like that largely deal with I, I like what we do. When I started doing direct mail, I found that the creative part of it to be really fun to get to work with people, to, to work with designers and 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 create something. I was surprised at how much I really wanted to do that, to do things that are funny or or like look really good aesthetically. And and we, I, I continue to work with designers to do stuff like that. And it's fun and rewarding to see something get manifested from what was an idea in your head the designers that we have end up making it look better than I pictured it. Um, implementing the strategy part of it too, of like, okay, here are the numbers that you had originally, the pollster had, and then we're going to put those into practice and and kind of be responsible for winning and losing, which I think is different usually from polling, um, that you're actually implementing the strategy. So I think all of those things about mail specifically, look, it's more profitable overall. There's There's more... It's, you can tell by an FEC report that more money goes into mail than goes into polling to do the research part of it. Um, so from that aspect, it worked out. But building a firm specifically around what we do, I think, has been re- rewarding and I wouldn't change it. But having a team of people and, and getting to choose who the people are that are here and developing relationships with the folks that are here and how important all that the, them are to, to what we do on a daily basis. Um, I, I don't think I would be able to have created a polling firm. My attention span is long enough to write a copy memo of a mail piece or to write a direct mail plan. I don't, you know, my friends that are pollsters are all much smarter than I am and, and better writers. And I don't think I would have had the 
the same level of commitment and ability to do it the same way that I'm able to do mail pieces and, and kind of do what we do that way. This is kind of a good fit for you. You call yourself the managing partner. What is that role? Does that mean you're the, um, it's kind of the CEO setting the direction? What's that title mean in your firm? I, I think that's basically it. Like, I mean, it, as we've grown, the things that I'm responsible for kind of like get taken off into other aspects, right? Because we have an operating director, you know, the the art designer is responsible for the 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 art director is responsible for the other designers that we hire and we have a creative director who comes up with concepts. So, I mean, I think when I'm dealing with clients, my part is to kind of oversee the strategy, make sure mail pieces fit into what we're doing. I work with other folks that, like Jonathan Dakota to kind of, to help me guide the way that the, the firm overall is set up. And we have to scale up and hire a bunch of people each election cycle and figure out what level of staff we can keep after an election cycle and how we're going to maintain and make sure we can pay everybody. And then, you know, just kind of seeing the direction of what we're going to do and how we're going to market things or, or how I'm going to market myself as well is all stuff that goes along with what I do. You said earlier that you didn't, don't usually get much time to look at other democratic consultants work or mail look, for mail firms. Do you take the time to look at what the Republicans are doing? and how what we do compares to what they do at all? Uh, I mean, I've seen some of it, but I, I think it's like pretty unique world, right? Like it, uh, less and less are we competing for the same voters anyway. Um, I mean, you can kind of see what they're doing, but I actually like been involved with the American Association of Political Consultants. So we've seen some of what they do on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of mail or anything else. And the campaigns that we work with definitely track the communication that Republican firms might be doing. As you know, as your opponent sends out a mail piece that calls you a communist and, and says you, you know, are in bed with Nancy Pelosi, like you definitely see their mail that way. Do you see it as fundamentally different than our side or fundamentally the same? Look, the Republican Party has no standard of truth anymore. You're not really playing the same game. I remember in, in 2016, we, we would do mail and it would take weeks of research and changes for the Hillary campaign and like the dedication to facts. A lot of Democratic campaigns, like we give the benefit of the doubt to Republicans if we're doing negative communication. I remember we were doing this for weeks at a time and then this piece comes on out from the Trump campaign that says, you know, lots of people support Donald Trump and it had like a picture of Shaq and 80 other celebrities who'd never endorsed them. And it was like, what? like they can put out whatever they want. It's not the same production of things. Like they have no truth standard. There's other things about how they communicate that I'd say like, okay, well, that's maybe that's something we could pick up from. But in general, I don't think there's much to learn from how they execute things because they don't have the same standard to the debate or anything else. Or moral compass. Yeah, I mean, I have a moral compass. It's just not on the same map, probably, right? It's like, we're going to do whatever. I mean, do you think there should be... I mean, you've mentioned the AAPC. I mean, there are allegedly professional standards for consultants. Is there ever consequences for consultants that put out things that are flagrant abuses of the truth? Should there be? Can we police this in any way? We're in the, increasingly in this battle for 
the democracy at a level that we didn't think about five years ago or 10 years ago? I don't think somebody can police political communication in any way that's going to make a dramatic, like a difference. I mean, there's an ethics board at the, at the AAPC and, and their standards, but like, I, I don't, I think we have different definitions of what's acceptable and what's not. I, I don't think you really want to limit what somebody will say in political communication, even if they don't have a truth standard, right? Like, you have to have your own moral compass about what you're comfortable saying and what you're not on behalf of your client. Democratic campaigns, we would never get away without fact checks or anything that points to like why we're making this kind of accusation or, or, or you know, a, assertion. No, I mean, they just called the insurrection legitimate political discourse. Do I think there's hope that somebody can look at both sides of communication and say that's fair or not fair? Not really thinking about the big picture of politics right now. So like, you know, as a consultant, you're in the world of normal politics, you're battling for each of your clients, you're trying to get those specific people or organizations to do as well as they can. But there is this sort of existential combat that's going on right now in our country between a fairly normal Democratic Party and an off-the-rails Republican Party that is really dangerous. Most observers that are fair see that right now. How does that change your job? Does it change it at all? Do you just go about your work or do you think, my God, you know, we're really in a different world and we need to act differently because of that? I mean, sometimes it's really hard to be like, oh, okay, like we're we're having a debate about issues and things people care about, or, you know, do we have to raise the stakes to win? Because if this person does win, it's going to re- lead to significantly more dire consequences than than it would have 10 years ago. I think you have to do what you're comfortable doing. As a male consultant, we probably are known as people who have a much more willingness to make a case that somebody shouldn't be in office or that, you know, that the decision is really important and make that vividly. But, you know, you, you, you can't let the highs be too high or the lows be too low or you won't really do a good job. Is that challenging? Yeah, like it's challenging when people think they should overthrow the U.S. Congress and basically don't believe you should ever win, right? Like, The Republicans don't believe that everybody should vote and that it might come out that the other side wins sometimes. That's disconcerting. Disconcerting seems rather mild to characterize it that way. I mean, I I guess you could make the argument that, you know, doing the regular things of democracy and letting people argue it out is, is in a certain way an antidote to the craziness that is sometimes taking place in political discourse. You mean like, I mean, like everything that we do that is the practice of democracy in certain way is healthier than the things that aren't. I, I mean, I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. Like, I, there's a certain part that I kind of think about, like, that, that Republicans seem to think that there's no way that they're wrong. Right. That, that it's infallible that, like, these are the things that are 100 percent right. And I'll deny that that I could ever be wrong. And if you're not willing to be wrong, then you're never actually right. 
if Democrats aren't ever right about anything, then nobody is. Then your ideas don't really matter. And we're not having a debate about ideas because you're saying you're wrong because of who you are, because you're woke. So that's crazy. There's no way we should ever take what you say to be serious. And by the way, I can't even really let you vote because if you do, it's going to end the world. I don't know if that makes entire sense, but like they seem to be denying that a debate should take place at the same time at this point while while insisting that they are. How do you view the Trump phenomenon from your long experience in politics? Is that different than anything else or is it just another example of what we've seen a lot of? I think it's where we were headed, probably. I think it's it's inherently American and, and where we are at this point in American history, too, and just kind of a changing America. Have you ever read the book Cast? Like, I think she describes in that the election and what it what was so unique about it. What she explains in that book, uh, what Isabel Wilkerson, but I also think it's just like, inherently was what I thought before was like, before Republicans just kind of didn't say blatantly brown and black people are the problem and they're coming to kill you. And, and actually, on the other side, Democrats never really said, hey, systematic racism is a real thing, right? Both parties seem to have an agreement, like, we're not going to actually say this one thing. But Trump actually said it, these brown people are coming to rape you and bring drugs and everything else. And, and Hillary, like, I don't think people will give her credit, but she, she actually did say, like, there's systematic racism. We have to address these actual problems. So that was a big change, right? Like, that was a significant change in the way that American politics operated, or, or at least over that period of time. Are you hopeful for the future of our politics or not? I think you have to be hopeful. I'm a pretty optimistic person. And, and I don't think you can like operate if you're going to say like shit's going to fall apart. Right. And um, there's no hope to this. It's, it's definitely scary. It's definitely a scary time in American politics. I, I think like, you know, the difference in losing the presidential race in 2016 and kind of going, yeah, this is how America operates. And then winning it and not really having that campaign get any credit or ever having a time to celebrate because we're in the middle of a pandemic. I think it was definitely challenging, you know, and I think political consultants as a whole tend to be pretty cynical bunch. But, you know, I remember watching the inauguration and watching Amanda Gorman's poem and being like, oh, all right, you can't actually really give up if this is what you wanted to do. You can't say it's going to fall apart. Um, so you kind of have to be hopeful to do like, we're just, you just keep doing the things that you're supposed to and, and finding the best people that you can work for and helping them win and believing that it'll make a difference because otherwise you wouldn't get involved in politics anyway. Like there's, you could be a dentist and make a lot of money and be on the golf course in the afternoon. If that's what you wanted to do. If you don't believe that you're doing something that makes a difference in the world and makes a change, like you can, there, there's other jobs to go get. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that, you wish I had. One thing that I talk a lot about is just like the difference in between persuading people and, and motivating them to vote and how that's kind of evolved, especially for black and brown voters that we're communicating a lot more with, if that makes sense. What do you mean exactly there? Like 
how it, how has our communication evolved over the last 20 years or the last 10 years in that we're we're doing a lot more communication to democratic leaning voters and less communication to persuadable voters should we be doing it that way oh i, I think we have to i think elections now are about like getting enough of your folks to vote um and and we have there are a lot more voters who will vote for us should we communicate with them then there are voters who are like cross pressured and actually can be persuaded to hop across one side. I think that was evident in Virginia and I get into debates with people all the time, but like Terry McAuliffe actually got lots of votes. He got more votes than Ralph Northam who won in a landslide, but Glenn Youngkin got more presidential year voters who voted for Trump to come out and vote for him. There's actually not a lot of swing there. We had a bigger drop off than they did. But that drop off was less than it was when we won in a landslide four years earlier. Why do you think so many Republicans came out for Youngkin? Do you think it was the campaign? Do you think it was uh, like the the backlash against Biden having won and, and so on? Part, part of it is, yes, it's the backlash that in every single election following a presidential election in Virginia, the opposite party has won, except for 2013 when Terry McAuliffe won, right? We were freaked out in 2017 and everybody voted. But like what tends to happen is people tend to analyze the election and say, well, Terry McAuliffe lost because he did this. Like, well, maybe he did. Did Glenn Youngkin do an amazing, like he kept his base motivated by talking about the things that they really liked and that he now is doing to the state of Virginia but pretended not to, but also demographically, like those voters are easier, you know, they tend to be whiter, more likely to own homes and more stable. You're going to see less drop off among those voters than you would among our base. That is basically the argument about the midterms right now. Like the political class, I would say, is well confident that Republicans are going to dominate the midterms because the party in power right now is going to get punished for being in in the leadership when there's a pandemic, when there's economic problems, when and there's plenty of stuff to be cranky about. Do you see as a political consultant anything that can undo that dynamic? They've also worked really hard as Republicans to make it harder for our people to vote, right? That's their number one goal was like, well, how do we make it really hard to vote? Yeah, but that's and that and that may matter uh, at the margin. But the the fact is that, you know, that the midterm tends to run hard against the party in power. It did in 2010 and 2014 and, uh, you know, uh, 1994, you know, sure. regardless. Definitely, yeah. That is a wind that happens. Right. And they definitely took a fan and made it harder in different places. If we could get turnout to similar to what a presidential looks like, would we be able to hold? But that's just not how it works, is it? I mean, turnout in a midterm isn't presidential level, and especially it isn't among the party that's defending rather than the party that's attacking in general. Yeah, there's definitely fewer people who vote in those elections. And and yeah, they're demotivated. So that makes it harder. Is it always that way? I mean, George Bush didn't have that problem in 2002, right? But in other words, is it particularly... I think harder for us. Yes, I think that's accurate. Scott, it's been really an honor to talk to you. Uh, is there anything else you want to say? 
No, I mean, it's been great. I really enjoyed it and, and uh, appreciate you having me on. Well, I wish you the best of luck in this election season and uh, stay in touch. Thank you. That was Scott Simpson. Scott is at resonancecampaigns.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.